The scripture reading before the lesson this morning will be from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 23. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 23. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. And the voice of the weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die in a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed." And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of the tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. It is great to be with you today and be able to worship God. We're thankful for the opportunity, thankful to be able to uh, see some faces that we've not uh, been able to see in a little while this morning. We're glad that you are here, each and every one of you, and we look forward to our time of studying God's Word together. The Word of God is, as it describes itself, a never-ending goldmine of spiritual wealth. In fact, David would say in Psalm 19 and verse number 10 that the commandments of God are more to be desired than gold, yes, even fine gold. God's word is a blessing and God's word will bless our lives beyond our comprehension when we are able to unlock its great value. And the way that we unlock the great value of the Word of God is when we learn how to read it and how to study it and understand it and apply it properly. This involves a number of things, like, for example, it includes recognizing that as we study God's Word, there are different kinds of literature in the Bible, like poetry, for example, from the book of Psalms or historical narrative like what we find in the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles or in the book of Acts. And there's also prophecy like what we find in the books of the prophets in the Old Testament. And it also includes understanding as we study God's word, keeping in mind the theme or the big picture of the Bible as a whole, which is the salvation of man through Christ to the glory of God. We see that begin to unfold in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15 as we read the first messianic prophecy. And then we see how God uh, unpacks that a little bit at a time as we go on through human history, through the pages of the Old Testament, into the New Testament, to the time of Christ, and after his ascension to heaven, and even uh, through the end of the New Testament. 
As we study God's word and unlock its true value, understanding it properly, it includes also recognizing that often God uses different images and figures of speech in order to communicate his will. And sometimes those images and those figures of speech, they take some time and some concentration and, if you will, a little bit of sweat equity in order to fully understand and fully appreciate. This morning, I want us to begin looking at one of those images. In fact, it's one of the great images, one of the great figures of speech that is found in God's Word, and that is the new heavens and the new earth. This particular phrase or this image is found in only four passages in God's Word. It's found twice in the, New, in the Old Testament, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 17 and Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 22. It is also found twice and only twice in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13 and Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 1. But while this phrase or this image, if you will, is only found in four verses in God's word, it has throughout the years served as the basis for a number of unbiblical ideas. Like, for example, what is commonly called dispensational premillennialism. The idea that Jesus came to this world and was rejected by surprise and so therefore established the church as sort of a countermeasure and at some point in the future intends to come back and to reign on a literal throne in Jerusalem for a millennium. There are a number of other ideas and doctrines that have come from, at least partially, this phrase or this image of the new heavens and the new earth. And so it is incredibly important for us to understand what it means, to understand exactly what the image is that God is using and what he's trying to communicate And the only way to really do that is to study the term in its context and to do it uh, appropriately so. So that's our goal for this morning. We're going to turn our attention to the book of Isaiah chapter 65 and chapter 66. And we want to examine what's going on in the context of these two chapters and see how it is that God uses this terminology in both of these chapters and what exactly it means. But before we do that, there are some principles that I would like for us to, I would like for us to consider. As we study God's word, there are these principles, rather, there are four of these passages that we have to keep in mind, and we should keep them in mind anytime we study the Bible, but in particular, when we study a difficult passage, when we study a controversial passage, these are passages, scriptures, and principles that have to be kept in mind and should, should govern our study of God's word. The first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 6 where the apostle Paul says that we have to be careful not to go beyond what is written. And the meaning or the idea of not going beyond what is written is literally to stay within the boundaries of scripture. Imagine two boundary markers uh, going on two sides of a road or of a highway, and our goal as we study the scripture is to stay within that boundary or within those boundaries. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 11, Peter said, if anyone speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 
And the idea is that if we're going to speak and if we're going to teach and minister and do so on behalf of God, then we ought to be using God's words and not our own. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 32, Moses will tell the people as he speaks of balance and as he speaks of staying true to the will of God, he will say, do not veer to the right hand or to the left. The idea, of course, is to, be, uh, to stay uh, straight and straight on the path. And then in Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 30, the Apostle Paul, as he makes an argument in that context, will simply ask this question. What does the scripture say? You may have heard often that the plea of the restoration movement was simply to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. And that really captures the essence of these four passages. When we study God's word, we have to be careful to speak as the Bible speaks, to use the language of scripture and to use God's word responsibly. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul, as you recall, will say that we are to handle a right, which means literally to cut straight or use properly the Word of God. We should use the language of Scripture and allow the Bible to be its own best commentary and never read into Scripture something that isn't there. If I could take just an aside for a moment, I want to give you this exhortation, and that is that uh, we ought to be thankful on a regular basis for a brother like Steve Lloyd, because I want you to know that I know of no one better who follows these principles more closely. And when you listen to him preach and when you listen to him teach, listen carefully and note how disciplined and how precise he is in using the terminology and in the language of scripture, not saying any more or any less than what's actually there. And that is the idea. Whenever we study God's word, we have to be careful to say things as God says them, to see things as God intends for us to see them, and not to add anything to what's there in addition to what God has already supplied. So with those thoughts in mind, let's turn our attention now to the book of Isaiah chapter 65. And I want us to begin in Isaiah chapter 65 first by noticing the outline of this chapter. In the first place, in the first seven verses, Isaiah 65 verses 1 to 7, we have the rejection of the rebellious. The rejection of the rebellious. I want you to notice in verse number one that Isaiah says, God says, rather through Isaiah, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was called, uh, not called by my name. And this is a reference to the Gentiles. And the reason we know that is because in Romans chapter 10 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul quotes this passage and makes that application. But then look at verse 2. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. This passage is in reference to the Jews. And we know that because in Romans 10 and verse number 21, the Apostle Paul quotes the passage and makes reference to the Jews. 
So now in this section, we have a reference to the Gentiles. We now have a reference to the Jews and their rebellion against God. And in verse 3 through verse number 7, God will describe their rebellion. He'll describe idolatry in verse 3 through 5. He will describe in verse 6 and 7 the fact that he is going to not keep silent, but he is going to repay them. That is his rejection of the rebellious, Isaiah 65 verses 1 to 7. But then in contrast to that, verse 8 through 16, we have the blessing of the servants. Isaiah 65, verse 8 to 16, the blessing of the servants. I want you to notice in verse number 9, toward the end of the verse, excuse me, verse number 8, toward the end of the verse, God says, so I will do for my servant's sake. And in verse number 9, toward the end of the verse, and my servants will dwell there. We have a contrast going on. In the first section, we have those who rebel against God and how God describes his rejection of them. In the second section, we have those who, do, who are described as the servants of God. And God describes how he is going to bless them. He says in verse number 8, uh, He says, rather, in verse number 9, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, uh, an heir of my mountains. Jacob and Judah is a reference to the totality of Israel. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants will dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down, and for my people who have sought me. Notice, my people who have sought me, as opposed to those who have rebelled against me, in the first section of the chapter. What we're reading is language that is indicative of abundance and of blessing and security. This is language that emphasizes by using images what God intends to do and how God intends to bless those who serve him faithfully. Look at verse 13. God says, therefore, uh, behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Notice the contrast. My servants versus those who are rebellious. My servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you will be ashamed. My servants will sing, but you will cry. And then we get to the next section, verses 17 through 25 which is the new creation. And I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 17, the the word for. It's the idea of because. It's an explanation, if you will. So we have the rejection of the rebellious in the first seven verses, and in contrast, the blessing of the servant, servants in verse 8 through verse number 16. And he ends that section in verse 16 by saying that he who blesses himself in the earth will bless himself in the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my eyes, for behold. Why are the former troubles forgotten? Why are the former troubles hidden from my eyes? Because I'm going to make something new. Isaiah chapter 65 verses 17 and following. I want you to note also before we go through the language of this section that the language that we are looking that we're seeing the images that we're seeing in Isaiah chapter 65 are not new to this book. In fact, if you study the book as a whole, you'll notice that it deals with certain themes and these themes repeat themselves over and over again throughout its pages. 
There's God's judgment of the Gentile nations. There's God's judgment of Israel. There's the deliverance of Israel from captivity. There is the uh, ultimate goal or idea of what God is going to accomplish through his servant, which is a reference to Jesus Christ, who would usher in a new arrangement and unite Jew and Gentile together as what God will describe as the servants of righteousness. And over and again through the book, beginning in the first chapter, as Isaiah expounds upon these themes, he uses this prophetic imagery that we have seen repeat itself over and over again. So by the time we get to Isaiah 65, we're reading and seeing things that really are not all that new in terms of this book. Now, let's turn our attention more specifically to verse number 17. I want you to notice with me, first of all, the characteristics of this new heavens and a new earth that he mentions in verse number 17. First of all, notice that he says, obviously, that it is new. And the word new means literally fresh or not previously existing. There's something fresh, something new, something that hasn't existed before. And he says, I'm going to create it. I create a new, and the word create means literally to bring something new into being. It is the exact same word in the Hebrew a text of the Old Testament that we'll find in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1, where the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, meaning he brought something new into being, something that didn't previously exist, now exists. So the first characteristic of what we're looking at is that it is new. It hasn't existed before. It's, it's something, well, that is new. Notice also that it is characterized by joy. Look at verse 18 and 19. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as rejoicing and her people as a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and I will joy in my people. It is a creation, it is a new creation that is characterized by joy. Notice in verse number 20 that it is characterized by fullness of life, if you will. The writer says, Isaiah says, No more shall an infant infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For a child will die 100 years old, but the sinner, being 100 years old, will be accursed. Obviously, we're seeing an image here um, uh, in this passage. And the idea here is not so much quantity as it is quality. It's fullness of life. It's also characterized by prosperity. Look at verse 21 and 22. They'll build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards. They'll eat fruit. They will build and, uh, excuse me, they will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people be. And my elect shall long enjoy the work in their hand, of their hands. Again, it is an image of prosperity. God says there are not going to be these cases where you build a house and plant a vineyard and then you're gone and somebody else gets to enjoy the fruit of your labor, but rather you will enjoy prosperity. So these are the, these are the characteristics of this new creation. It is, first of all, new. It is, second, characterized by joy. And third, characterized by fullness of life. And fourth, characterized by prosperity. Now look at a contrast Look at a contrast. As we try to really understand what's going on in Isaiah 65 verse 17 and what the new heavens and the new earth are, what will help us is to consider that with which it is contrasted. 
Look at the second part of verse 17. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. You see, if we want to know what the new is, then what we really have to do is understand what the former is because in understanding the former, then we'll have a better idea of what's coming in its place. Now, what we have to do in order to understand this is to step away from Isaiah 65 for a moment and look at some of the language that Isaiah has used previously in his book. Look at Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18 and 19 just for a moment. And I want you to notice the language that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 43, verse 18 and verse 19. God says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it will spring forth. Will you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people. Um, This people I have formed for myself, they will declare my praise. Look at Isaiah chapter, uh, look at, did I say 34? That was 43, I'm sorry. Look at Isaiah chapter 34 now for real this time. Isaiah chapter 34, and look at verse number 3 and verse number 4. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 3 and verse number 4. Notice that Isaiah says in verse number 3, Their slain will be thrown out, their stench will rise from their corpses, and the mountains will be melted with blood, and all the hosts of heaven will be dissolved. And listen to this, and the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll, and their host shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as the fruit falling from a fig tree. Notice that language in verse number four. The heavens will be rolled up like a scroll and make note of it because we'll revisit this passage next week as we see application uh, or similar application rather in a New Testament passage. But what I want us to notice right now is in Isaiah 34 verse three and four, Isaiah is describing judgment for pagan nations. God is describing it rather. And remember that this is one of the themes that repeats itself throughout the book. In this case and in this passage, as God is preparing to usher in his kingdom and the new creation, if you will, and as he is preparing to fulfill his will through his servant, which is a reference to Christ Jesus, the first thing that has to happen before his house and his kingdom is built is that the pagan nations and the pagan kingdoms, they have to be cast down. But it's not just them. Look at Isaiah chapter 56, or excuse me, 51 and verse 6. Isaiah 51 and verse 6. Listen to what Isaiah says in this passage. He says, lift up your eyes, Isaiah 51, 6, to the heavens, and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like the smoke, and the earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. The language is similar as uh, what we saw in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 3 and 4. But in this passage, he's not talking about pagan nations. He's talking about the Jewish nation. Remember that Isaiah is a prophet who writes warning of captivity that is upcoming for Judah and for Israel because of their unfaithfulness to God. And that is also one of the themes that he deals with. 
So now, in the book of Isaiah, we have the destruction of pagan nations. We even have the destruction or the end of the Jewish age. And I'm submitting to you this morning that that is the former of Isaiah 65 and verse 17. As God talks about the new heavens and the new earth, as we'll see in a moment, he is talking about a new order that will come and be ushered in by the Messiah, and that is contrasted with the older or with the former, which is the Jewish age or the Jewish law or the Mosaic dispensation. In fact, if you'll take note of these New Testament passages, Galatians 3 and verse 14 and Galatians 3 verses 19 to 25, the Apostle Paul will explain to us what the purpose of the Old Testament was. And he'll tell us that the purpose of the Old Testament law is that it never was intended to be something that was going to be permanent. But rather it was something that served only as a temporary placeholder, as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, the Apostle Paul would say. And so God always intended for the Jewish age and the law of Moses to pass away. Jeremiah will write about it in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 and following when he talks about how a new covenant is going to come and that God would make that new covenant with his people. And the writer of the book of Hebrews will take up that passage in that language and he will also make the application of that to Christ and his law, the gospel, and the New Testament dispensation. So if we're trying to understand what the new heavens and the new earth are in this passage, first we have to notice the characteristics. Second, we have to notice the contrast that's going on between the new and the old and what the, the old is. But fourth and finally, pay close attention to what happens in verse number 25. In verse 25, we have this language, the wolf and the lamb will feed together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. More about the mountain in just a few moments, but I want you to put your finger or your bookmarker in Isaiah 65, verse 25, and I want you to notice Isaiah chapter 11 and verse number 1. In Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse number 1 and extending all the way through verse number 10, what we have are a context of passages, a set of passages, which are unquestionably messianic prophecy. Notice, there will come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch will grow out of his root. That's talking about Jesus. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But I want you to skip down to verse 6. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling will be together. A little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. The young ones will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child will put his hand by the viper's den. There shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters of the sea. And in that day there will be a root of Jesse who will stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles will seek him, and his resting place will be glorious. Notice a few things about this context. First of all, unquestionably, it is messianic. Second of all, the Apostle Paul will actually quote from this context in Romans 15 and verse 12. That's Romans 15, 12. And he will make application of what's going on in the first 10 verses of Isaiah chapter 11 to the church. Third, notice that this passage in this language beginning in verse number 6 is very similar 
to what we just saw in Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 25, and that's not by accident. Because remember that Isaiah is fleshing out a number of themes. He's fleshing them out over and over again. And as we're looking at this theme, as we're looking at this image, what we're dealing with is the passing away of the old, which is the Jewish dispensation, and the entering in of the new, which is the Christian dispensation. So the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth refer literally, when you put it all together, to a new arrangement or to a new order. And it is talking about the church and it's talking about the messianic age. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10, the apostle Paul will talk about the time when God will sum up all things in Jesus Christ. Remember, before we began looking at the text, that one of the points that we mentioned is that when we study God's Word, we have to keep the big picture of this book in mind, the Bible. And that is the salvation of man through Christ Jesus to the glory of God. And a big part of that, as we learn from the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, is that God, from eternity, before he ever said, let there be light, had this plan in his mind in which he would bring the church of Christ into existence as a unified body composed of both Jew and Gentile. And Paul will say in Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 16, that God, that Jesus, rather, has reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God in one body by the cross. The one body, of course, is the church. Reconciliation has to do with repairing a relationship. And so he tells us that man is reconciled with his fellow man and man is reconciled with his God. And that happens in one body, in the church, by the cross. And in the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul will say this is God's eternal purpose. So in Ephesians 1.10, when he says that all things are summed up together in Christ Jesus, what he is talking about is the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the one that brings together this scheme of redemption or this eternal plan or eternal purpose of God. And that's what God, that's what Isaiah is looking forward to in Isaiah 65.17 when he describes the new heaven and the new earth. Now let's take a few minutes. I know our time is going by, but let's take a few minutes and let's look at what happens in Isaiah chapter 66. Because Isaiah mentions it in that passage as well. Isaiah 66 and verse number 22. In this passage, Isaiah 66, or this chapter rather, we see many of the same themes as what we saw in chapter 65, except they are, they are uh, given in reverse order. But in particular, this chapter builds upon the promise of a new heaven and a new earth in Isaiah 65, verse 17 through verse 25. I want you to notice that this chapter begins and ends by highlighting one of, of Isaiah's primary themes, and we've seen it already in Isaiah 65, and that is the house of the Lord. Notice in Isaiah 66 and verse 1, thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? And in Isaiah chapter 66 and verse number 20, Isaiah talks about those coming to my holy mountain as children of Israel bringing an offering in the clean vessel into the house of the Lord. This 
terminology or this emphasis on the house of the Lord is important in this chapter. And here's the reason why. Because we read in Isaiah 63 verse 18 and Isaiah 64 and verse 11. That's Isaiah 63, 18 and 64 and verse number 11. That the house of God, that is or was the temple, the physical temple, temple that existed in Jerusalem, that that house is going to be destroyed. But we have also seen throughout this book that the remnant and the redeemed are going to come to Zion. Notice also throughout the book of Isaiah, we have this emphasis on the mountain. Isaiah 65 and verse 9, from Judah, an heir of my mountains. Isaiah 65 and verse number 11, you are those who forget my uh, holy mountain. Isaiah 65 and verse number 25, in all my holy mountain. And then Isaiah 66 and verse number 20, we have a mention of my holy mountain again. We'll talk about that more in just a few moments. But throughout this book, God is describing a situation in which people are coming to the mountain. They're coming to my mountain. Something's going to happen at God's mountain. And now finally, when we get to Isaiah 65 and 66, they're not coming to the mountain anymore. They've arrived there. But here's the thing. If the house of God, which is the temple, has been destroyed, as we learn in Isaiah 63 and Isaiah 64, and yet the remnant and the redeemed are said to be coming to Zion, which is a reference of Jerusalem to the mountain of God, then there has to be another house there. You remember Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4? It's the first kingdom prophecy in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah describes a situation in which the law is going to come forth from Zion and from Jerusalem, and the mountain of the Lord's house is going to be established. Also Isaiah chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. But as we get to Isaiah 66 then, in verse 1 and verse 2, what we learn is that the God of the universe cannot be held in a physical building. Therefore his house will be spiritual, and it will be composed of those who fear and those who obey him, while those who rebel and reject him will be punished. That's spelled out in Isaiah 66, verses 1 to 4. Now I want you to skip down to the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 18, and this is where we'll spend the remainder of our time, what little is left of it. I want you to notice that as he describes his house, that his house, verse 18, will consist of all nations and tongues. That's Jew and Gentile. That's everybody. I want you to notice in verse number 19 that all nations and tongues will see and will declare his glory. I want us to notice in verse number 20 and 21 that they, that is all nations who will come and see him declare his glory, that they will come to God's holy mountain in Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. And notice this verse 21, that God will make of them, who's the them? All nations, everybody, God will make of them priests and Levites. And... uh, That clearly, of course, illustrates the figurative nature of this section. Notice then the connector in verse number 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make before me shall remain, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. This is not the first time that we have seen language like this in the book of Isaiah. I mentioned to you a moment ago, Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 4, where we read about the mountain of the Lord's house. 
We have Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 9, the context we looked at a moment ago, which is unquestionably messianic, in which God describes that people will neither be hurt or destroyed in my holy mountain. And then in Isaiah 56 and verse number 7, the sons of the foreigner are brought to the mountain. And then in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, the Hebrews writer contrasts the old mountain, that is Sinai, to which Moses brought the children of Israel and into which he ascended in order to receive the law of God. He contrasts that mountain with now a present mountain, and he says, we have now come to that mountain, and that's Mount Zion. And ladies and gentlemen, that is a reference to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we put all of these things together, what we see in reference, referenced in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66 as it pertains to the new heavens and the new earth, it has to do with a new arrangement. It has to do with a new order. It has to do with the passing away of Judaism and the law of Moses and the old dispensation and the ushering in of the Messiah and his system and his reign and his dispensation. The church... A time and a place and an entity which God had intended before he ever created the world to bring into existence as a body unified of both Jew and Gentile. All under one head, that's Christ. All serving under one system, that's the gospel. All working together as a unified whole to bring glory and honor to God. Isaiah 66 and verse number 22 simply makes the point that just as the new arrangement will remain, so shall the nature of the people within it, Jew and Gentile, who will submit to the Lord. We'll never go again back to a situation in which it's Jew and Gentile divided, but rather it will continue that they will be united. God's word truly is a treasure, but to unlock its wealth, we have to read it and we have to study it carefully and we have to study it responsibly. And the new heavens and the new earth of Isaiah 65 and 66 is certainly no exception to that. There's so much more that can and should be said about these two passages and how we know about their fulfillment and how we reason to that conclusion, but we simply don't have the time this morning to deal with any more of the material. But you also should take note of the fact that there's another arrangement coming. And there are two other passages in God's Word which mention the new heavens and the new earth, and that's 2 Peter chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 21. We'll deal with those passages, Lord willing, next Sunday morning. But this morning, I want us to stop for just a moment, and I want us to reflect one more time on the passage that we noted in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 22. The Hebrews writer says again, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of uh, sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. As we think about that passage, I simply want to make this point. That when we consider it, we ought to pause and we ought to reflect 
on the blessing of having come to Mount Zion, or the church. The writer of this book is emphasizing the blessing of coming to and being a member of the body of Jesus Christ as it is contrasted with Judaism and the old law to which they were tempted to return. The book of Hebrews is a good book to keep in mind and study parallel to the book of Isaiah, I would suggest. But as we consider the blessing of coming to Mount Zion and to the church, what we have to realize is that God's desire is that all people be added to the body of his son, Jesus Christ. And the way that that happens, according to Scripture, is when a person believes in the deity of Jesus, John 8 and verse 24. When a person repents of their sin, Luke 13 and verse 3, when they confess their faith, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, and when they are immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2 and verse 38, the Bible says in Acts 2 and 47, that when a person is willing to do all of those things, that God will add them to the church, which is the body, which is, which is Mount Zion, the church of the living God. My friend, if you're not a member of that church this morning, why not? What are you waiting for? The gospel's call is extended to every single individual and God's desire is that everyone answer it, that everyone respond. And if we can help you to do it, then we invite you this morning to come forward and let your need be known while we stand and sing the invitation song together.